Don's a good sport. All right, Isaiah 26, 1 through 12. And this is from the Nomecan Standard. And that day, this song will be sung in the land of Judah. We have a strong city. He sets up walls and rampart for, for security. Open the gates that the righteous nation may enter. The one that remains faithful, the steadfast of mine, you will keep in perfect peace because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever, for in God the Lord we have an everlasting rock. For he has brought low those who dwell on high, the unassailable city. He lays it low, he lays it low to the ground. He casts it to the dust. The foot will trample it, the feet of the afflicted, the steps of the helpless. The way of the righteous is smooth. O upright one, make the path of the righteous level. Indeed, while following the way of your judgments, O Lord, we have waited for you eagerly. Your name, even your memory, is the desire of our souls. At night, my soul longs for you. Indeed, my spirit within me seeks you diligently. For when the earth experiences your judgments, the inhabitants of the world learn righteousness. Though the wicked is shown favor, he does not learn righteousness. He deals unjustly in the land of uprightness and does not perceive the majesty of the Lord. O Lord, your hand is lifted up. Yea, they do not see it. They see your zeal and the people and are put to shame. Indeed, fire will devour your enemies. Lord, you will establish peace for us since you have also performed for all of our works. Thank you, Don. We're in part two of our series on knowing peace. And we've been talking about just the, the need for peace in our day and age, that this is just such a, it's a, we're in a crazy time. And the whole world is kind of in upheaval right now, in our nation very much so. And so there's a big need for personal peace and societal peace. So we, we're looking at that, and we're going to spend uh, the next bunch of weeks, right through Christmas time, looking at this concept of peace and shalom. Last week we looked at, well first, one of the things, if you go online, you can look at the Bible Project, they have a, a great word study video on peace, and I may show it some week. Uh, we looked at the definition of peace, biblically, and that the, the biblical definition of peace is not an emotional tranquility. You know, we think of peace and we think of, ah, but that's not the d biblical definition of peace. The biblical definition of peace means really to be together, to be put together, and to, to be finished or put together and whole. And if you think about it, that word picture works for us, because if you're in conflict, what are you? You are apart. You're, you know, you're on separate sides. You're torn apart. Conflict tears apart. When the conflict is over, you come together. And so the end of conflict would be peace, because now it's the bringing together. So that's the biblical concept of peace, when something is complete and put together, as opposed to pulled apart. So that's the basic idea of peace. Last week in part one, as we looked at uh, the, the promise of peace in Zechariah chapter seven and, we, and, and seven and eight, and we looked at that the reason we don't have peace is not because God has somehow failed, but because we have failed. 
because we don't receive and invest in the peace that God gives us. And so the lack of peace isn't because God has somehow fallen short or messed up or, or not been powerful enough. The problem is us. We also saw that peace is part of God's mission for His people and for His kingdom, to bring peace, to bring together, to bring things together. That is part of the mission and so therefore part of our mission. And we're going to spend more time over the next few weeks as we continue to look at that. Today we're in Isaiah 26, as we saw, as Don was reading. And so if you turn there with me, I want to just take a second, because we're going to be in Isaiah this week and next. And when we read, especially the Old Testament, we can struggle for a couple of reasons. One, big parts of the Old Testament are written in poetry. Isaiah 26 is poetry. Depending on your translation, your translation may actually show you that. In my Bible, if it's regular text, the sides are straight. If it's poetry, it's center justified, so all the text is centered, and so the margins are kind of ragged because it, each line has its own line. That's poetry. Now, for us as English-speaking 20th century, 21st century types, our idea of poetry tends to mostly have to do with meter and rhyme. Most of us like poetry. Now, maybe, you know, you're one of those people who likes E.E. E. Cummings. I actually like E.E. E. Cummings. But E.E. E. Cummings, his poems are weird because he just throws out words on the page, and it's poetry. But most of us, our idea of a poem is something that has a meter and rhyme. I memorized one as a child. I'll just give you the first, not as a child, as a teenager in first English class. Somebody said that it couldn't be done, but he with a chuckle replied that maybe it couldn't, but he would be one who wouldn't say no till he tried. So he buckled right in with a trace of a grin on his face. If he worried, he hid it. He started to sing as he tackled the thing that couldn't be done, and he did it. Now, the poem keeps going. I'm going to stop there. But that's how we, that's poetry, right? We go, ah, see, meter, dun 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 And it rhymed. Now, Hebrew poetry, that's not how they did poetry. And they weren't E.E. Cummings either. In Hebrew poetry, they didn't rhyme sounds they rhymed thoughts. So when you read like the Psalms or Isaiah, anytime you read poetry, you want to look for what they call we call couplets. Because how Hebrew poetry works is I will say something and then I'll say it again a different way. And so they tend to say that all po Hebrew poetry tends to come in twos, couplets, two lines. And then sometimes, and we'll see it today, sometimes they get really intense, and they'll do two lines, this line matches this line, and then these two lines match these two lines, and so then they'll start repeating couplets even, and that's like high-level poetry there. Watch, let's look at it. Look at verse 1 of chapter 26 of Isaiah, and I'll just give you a couple quick examples before we dive into the meaning, because this helps us figure out the meaning by knowing how to read the poetry. It starts in prose when it just says, in this day, in that day, the song, this song will be sung in the land of Judah. That's prose. Then the song starts. We have a strong city. He sets up walls and ramparts for security. That's the first couplet. Do you see it? Strong city. And then it talks about what makes it strong. He has set up walls and ramparts for security. Next couplet. Open the gates that the righteous nation may enter. The one that remains faithful. So the righteous, and then it repeats the idea of the righteous, the one that remains faithful. So that's, those are couplets. So it says it, and then it says it again. When you're trying to come up with a meaning, you can oftentimes follow it. Now, one more thing. We'll see this in a minute. Sometimes they do the couplet, and they get again creative, and so then the couplet is say it, and then say the opposite. 
So another couple, they might rhyme the thought backwards. So they say, the one who is raised high shall be honored, but the wicked will be laid low. And so then high and low. So that's a contrast rhyme, all right? So that's, there's your primer on Hebrew poetry. No extra charge, all right? Now let's, having had a little primer on how to read this, let's go through it and look at what it's saying. So, beginning of the song. This is the promise of the peace that is going to come. They are, they are not in a time of peace. They are actually not even heading into a time of peace. And yet, here's the promise. And that's what it starts. It says, the day will come when this will be their song. We have a strong city. He sets up walls and ramparts for security. So, we have... What do we have? How do we have a strong city? Because He sets it up. I want you to just catch that. He does the work. Verse 2, open the gates that the righteous nation may enter, the one that remains faithful. What does righteous mean? It means to remain faithful or to trust, to be faithful to Him, to trust God. Verse 3, the steadfast of mind you will keep in perfect peace because He trusts in you. Some of you may know that there's an old hymn that is made out of that verse. Thou will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee. Some of you know that song from this verse. We need to stop for just a second on this one because what does perfect peace mean? Now, remember what I told you what the biblical definition of peace is. It's to be complete, right? To have it all, to have it all together. So here, if we were to translate this verse perfectly literally, it would read, the steadfast of mind you will keep in peace, peace. The word shalom appears twice. It says, you will keep in perfect peace. You, the steadfast of mind you will keep in shalom, shalom. Because it would be, so another way to say it is, if, if peace means to be complete, then he says, the steadfast of mind, he will keep completely complete. Fully full. Holy whole. Peace, peace. So the, in the original language, and so they translated it, since they knew that that meant full peace, they translated it perfect peace to give you the, the thought. But literally it's, he will keep you in peace, peace. Fullness of completeness. Verse 4, because he trusts in you, so then verse 4, trust in the Lord forever. For in God the Lord we have an everlasting rock. God is called a rock that we can trust in. Again, lean on. Then in verses 5 and 6, this is where he talks about in the contrast. For he has brought low those who dwell on high, the unassailable city. He lays it low. He lays it low to the ground. He casts it to the dust. You see that now we've gotten twos by twos. He has brought it low. He lays it low. He lays it low to the ground. He casts it to the dust. Four rhymes. Two more rhymes. The foot will trample it. The feet of the afflicted. The steps of the helpless. There's three there. Boom, boom, boom. Couplet plus one. This is talking about Babylon. Because they're about to be captured by first Assyria and then Babylon, the great proud. Nebuchadnezzar is known for how proud he is. He boasts. Here's the, the prophecy of that this proud city that beats them will be laid low. So how low? The foot will trample it. 
And notice who will trample it, verse, the second half of verse 6. The feet of the afflicted, the steps of the helpless, will, be, will beat the powerful. Verse 7. The way of the righteous is smooth. O upright one, make the path of the righteous level. Again, smooth and level. There's the parallel. But how does it become smooth and level? It says, O righteous one, make it. So again, God is doing the work. God makes it smooth and level. Verse 8, Indeed, while following the way of your judgments, O Lord, we have waited for you eagerly. Your name, even your memory, is the desire of our souls. It says, while we've been waiting, we've been waiting eagerly while following, but our desire is for your name and even just to remember you. So where, where, where are they, where's, their head, where's their head at? He said, we're thinking about you all the time. Our desire and our memory is for you. Just to, to, mem- to remember you, the memory of you is our desire. At night, my soul longs for you. Indeed, my spirit within me seeks you diligently. So my mind is on you. I'm thinking about you. Then, starting in the second half of verse 9, in the second half of verse 9 and 10, he does an interesting little compare and contrast here. Second half of verse 9, For when the earth experiences your judgments, the inhabitants of the world learn righteousness. Though the wicked has shown favor, he does not learn righteousness. So he says, now, regular people, the unrighteous, those who don't know God, he says, when God shows them judgment, they learn. They go, oh, that's bad. He says, when God shows them righteousness, they don't learn. See the contrast? When they're shown judgment, they learn righteousness. They learn, oh, we did bad. But if God just shows them favor, he says they don't get it. Instead, what happens if they show favor? He deals unjustly in the land of uprightness and does not perceive the majesty of the Lord. He says the problem is if God was just always nice to people, they would just do whatever they wanted. And when they do unrighteousness, they are unjust. They treat people poorly. And they have no perception of God's majesty. That when people lose sight of who God is, they start treating other people poorly. And in an unjust way. We talked about that a little bit last week. What are the results? That's the first half of the song. Now, 11 through 21 is the second half of the song. Which are the results of this? O Lord, your hand is lifted up, yet they do not see it. They see your zeal for the people and are put to shame. So first the idea, so unrighteousness, people, and justice. Sorry, I'm behind on my notes here. So first they see, they don't see the hand. The idea is his hand is raised, like, because it's about to strike. So they said they don't see that. But they do see God's zeal for the people. They do see that God cares about his people. And that puts them to shame. Indeed, fire will devour your enemies. Verse 12, Lord, you will establish peace for us since you have also performed for us all our works. And there's, again, the reference that we saw in verse 1. Who does the work? They say, you do. Not, you have rewarded all our works. It doesn't say you've done, you've rewarded because we worked so hard, we did such a good job, and God gold starred us. He says, you have given us, you established peace, and you've done all our work. You've done all our work. Verse 12 is important there. 
Verse 13, O Lord our God, other masters beside you have ruled us, but through you alone we confess your name. It says we've had a lot of different masters. They get the Assyrians, they get the Babylonians, then they'll get the Romans later in the future from Isaiah. And they go, you know, we've had all these different people who have conquered us, but the only person we remember is you. You're the only master we remember. Verse 14. This next part, verse 14 and 15, are part of, again, a big compare and contrast. Verse 14, the dead will not live, the departed spirits will not rise. Therefore, you have punished them and destroyed them, and you have wiped out all remembrance of them. Now, if we took that by itself, we'd go, wait a minute, I thought there was a resurrection. What does it mean the dead will not live, the spirits will not rise? Is this contradicting the other parts of the Bible that teach a resurrection? No. Again, he's talking about the mighty who are laid low and that they will, not own, they will no longer have a legacy. Now, we're going to skip ahead for a minute because look at the, the contrast. Verse 19, talking about God's kingdom. Your dead will live. Their corpses will rise. You who lie in the dust, awake and shout for joy, for your dew is as the dew of the dawn, and the earth will give birth to the departed spirits. So he's talking about that this, this nation, that this, the, the proud that they've just talked about, the masters that they won't remember. He says, we don't even think about these other masters. We only think about you. And he says, and actually, nobody will remember them. Their dead will not live. Doesn't, it's not talking about a bodily resurrection. It's talking about, will the civilization, will this great nation have any legacy? No. The spirits will not endure. Their dead will not live. But God's legacy will be remembered. Their dead will live. Their corpse will rise. They will awake and shout for joy. So it's the lasting consequence. Will this nation matter? There is not a legacy. But first, verse 15 through 18, you have increased the nation, O Lord. You have increased the nation. You are glorified. You have extended all the borders of the land. So it's, again, anticipating God's people being successful in the end. O Lord, they sought you in distress. God's people. They could only whisper a prayer. Your chastening was upon them. As the pregnant woman approaches the time to give birth, she writhes and cries out in her labor pains. Thus were we before you, O Lord. We were pregnant. We writhed in labor. We gave birth, as it seems, only to wind. We could not accomplish deliverance for the earth, nor were the inhabitants of the world born. So first, they look at that nation, they say, they will not survive. But then they say, and we have suffered under them and we couldn't fix it. We suffered, it was painful, and we couldn't fix it. We couldn't restore ourselves. Even when we finally produced something, it was like it was wind, meaning just emptiness, just air. And so after all our work, we could not accomplish our deliverance. We couldn't save ourselves or anyone. And so then we're back to verse 19 where he says, but God does this work. And God brings the dead to life and creates a legacy. And verse 19, we survive. And there is a legacy. We go forward. Well then, if it's bad, but it will be better eventually, 
but in the meantime, it's this painful struggle, then what do we do? Well, he finishes the song as God says, so here's what you do in the meantime. Verse 20, come, my people, enter into your rooms and close your doors behind you. Hide for a little while until the indignation runs its course. For behold, the Lord is about to come out from his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. And the earth will reveal her bloodshed and will no longer cover her sling. So he says, just wait it out. Because why? This is going to be a while. And that's part of the message of Isaiah. It's going to be a while. The deliverance isn't going to come today. So trust. He says, but go into your room, close the door, and hide for a little while as you wait God's work. So that is the song, and now we know what the song says. So the big question for us is, but what does it mean for us? We're not facing the Babylonian captivity. How does this relate to us? So let's go back and look at what lessons this teaches us in our discussion this morning. The first, from the beginning of the song, is that trust gives peace. Complete to complete. Peace, peace. That as we trust in Him, there is where your wholeness comes. Because what we saw is it's God's work. It's all God's work. So often we think we've got a responsibility. We've got to try to fix things. We've got to try to put it together. We've got to try to accomplish God's work. But what did He say? God's done all our work. And God's the one who will bring peace. God is the rock. We are not the rock. God is the rock. We stand on the rock. And so we focus on God's work. We demonstrate faithful trust in His work. Now, what do we tend to do? We find ourselves facing the scary thing. Maybe it's where our society is or, or what evil people are doing or maybe it's a, a bad health diagnosis or whatever. But we face our scary thing and it captivates us because it's scary. And so now you're laying there at night, and all you can see, it's like in the dark, and all you can see is the scary thing. And so then we pray, and what do we do? We say, Lord, help me to feel better. Give me peace. But what are you thinking about the whole time? As you're praying, give me peace. What are you thinking about? The big scary thing. And so you try to look at the scary thing and feel different. But the problem is, it's a big scary thing. It's a big scary thing. And so it doesn't, you don't feel different. But you're trying to feel different. Help me feel different, Lord. Help me feel different, Lord. Help me look at this thing and not be scared. Boy, that's a big scary thing. And so it doesn't work very well. And so you might pray for hours, staring at the big scary thing and saying, Lord, help me feel better about this. It doesn't work. It doesn't work much. And so then, because you have a human mind, what your human mind does, it's like a Rubik's Cube. You say, how can I solve it? So you start figuring out how to get around or over or through the big scary thing. And so pretty soon you're like, God, can I do this? God, can I do this? And you start trying to solve your problem. But of course, if the problem was easy to solve, you wouldn't be laying up all night trying to solve it. Because it's a big scary thing. And half the time you can't do anything about it, because it's just there. And we go, so what's this whole peace talk? Because I don't feel better. And I prayed all night, and I just didn't get any sleep. And when you don't get any sleep, big scary things get bigger and scarier because now you're overtired. But what did it say? What was the formula? Not formula. I don't even like that word. 
What was the promise? The steadfast of mind, you will keep in peace, peace, because he trusts in you. So what does that mean? When I'm looking at the big scary thing, I'm asking God to help me do something, including feel. But I'm not dwelling, my mind is not fixed on him, it's fixed on the big scary thing. And because that's all I'm looking at and all I'm thinking about, even though I'm praying to God, my mind is not fixed on God. It's fixed on God, help me with the big scary thing. As opposed to going, you know what, the big scary thing is temporary. What has God done? Now when Isaiah was writing this, the Messiah hadn't come yet. And yet, they were still told, trust in the work of God. But we've had the Messiah come. We hang crosses on the wall to remind us that the Messiah has come. We know what he's going to do. He's done it. It is finished. And so when I'm laying in bed at night and the big scary thing is before me, what do I need to change it out for? What's been done? And instead of sitting there going, God, help me deal with the big scary thing, God says, why don't you stop thinking about it and think about what I've done? Fix your mind. I mean, that's why I love that translation in that song. Thou will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee. Keep your mind stayed. Have it stay on. Not the big scary thing. On him. He'll do the work. He's got a path through. It may be painful because that was the other part. Now, we'll come back to that thought in a minute. Because the next thing we learn here is that God deniers, the unrighteous, they trust in themselves. And by trusting in themselves, they fight for self over others, which we call injustice. I've used this analogy before, but when I took lifeguarding classes, you've, some of you heard me talk about this before, when, you go, when you're a lifeguard, you go to save someone who's drowning. You swim out to them, and they're like, drowning. and so you swim up to them, and when you get in, in range, they will try to kill you. Isn't that nice? I'm here to save you. Great, let's die together. Why? Because they want to die with you? They were just hoping for company when they went down? No. It's because they're panicking. And when your back is against the wall, you'll do anything to survive. That's just the human instinct. It's part of our fallen nature. And so if I'm drowning and I'm trying to stay above water, oh, you're, you're above water, let me hold on to you. <laughs> And so in lifeguarding, they teach you to suck, tuck, and duck. I love that. Suck, tuck, and duck. Meaning you <gasps> suck in a big breath, tuck your chin so that they can't like, get leverage under your chin and hold you, and then you go underwater. And because they are trying not to go underwater, they will let go. And then you know what you do? You swim away. Not like a way of, I'm going back to the shore, but just out of range. And you wait until they tire out when they can't well, like when they're really drowning and they can't drown you anymore and then you grab them and, and rescue them. Because God deniers the unrighteous, they're drowning. And they will fight. And they will hurt people to fight because we have to preserve ourselves. We have to save ourselves. And if other people get hurt, well, you know, it's their pro that's their problem. We have to protect ourselves. We have to stay alive, protect our life, our way of life, whatever it is. And that's what the unrighteous do. 
They elevate themselves over others, which creates injustice. And they may, by doing that, they may actually gain power for a while. But verse 13, he says, but you know what? We've had other masters who did rule us, but we don't remember them. They don't last. The book of Ecclesiastes talks about that. He says, although a person may do evil and, by, and benefit, that won't last. They will not succeed in a legacy. He says he will not lengthen his life like a shadow. And the writer of Ecclesiastes says, I know in the end it will be better to follow the Lord because that's where life dwells. And so even if a person succeeds temporarily, just like the person drowning, grabbing hold of a person helps in the meantime, but you're not, you're not going to be saved. It's not going to help you long term. The writer of Ecclesiastes teaches us this because there's only God. There is only God. And so we trust not in our ability to save ourselves, not in our ability, because that's what it said there in verse 18 and 19. Verse 18. We could not accomplish deliverance for the earth. We couldn't do it. We fought, we screamed, we yelled, we were in pain, and we couldn't do it. Staying up all night, wrestling with the big scary thing, you're not going to beat it because it's a big scary thing. That is not the path to peace. And that's why it says, verse 18, it may hurt for a while. And trust includes waiting. Verses 20 through 21. They're like, but what's going to happen? We, we've got invaders on the borders. Yep, and they're coming in. The big scary thing's not done yet. So go in to your room. Close your door behind you. And hide for a little while. But that is not the absence of peace. That's because the presence of peace. Because that's why we have to come back to verse 12. Lord, you will establish peace for us. Peace is not something you have to fight your way into. And that's why we struggle with peace, because we think it's something we're supposed to achieve. But it says, verse 12, you will establish peace for us. You have performed all our works. So I focus on you, and that's why I wanted to sing the songs we sang today. First, we sang simply trusting every day. Trusting through the stormy way. Even when my faith is small, trusting Jesus, that is all. What does trust mean? It doesn't mean sit there and go, I'm going to try harder to trust. Trust, 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 trust. That's nothing. It's what do I dwell on? Where is my mind fixed on what he does? The fact that it's finished. As I face hard times, as I face my own big scary things, if I focus on the big scary thing, I go, what's going to happen? If I focus on what he has done and is going to do, I know what's going to happen. I know how the story ends. Am I worried about, oh, the world's going? I know where the world is going, and I know how the story ends. It ends in peace. And that allows me peace today because I fix my mind on that. And so the way that God's going to finish it all, I can live enjoying that now. And that's how I can have why it says, he keeps you in peace, peace. 
because your trust is in what he's done and doing. And so I lay there in bed and I say, you know what? It doesn't matter what the big scary things are. Oh, they're hard. Oh, they're going to hurt. Oh, yeah. But I know how the story ends. Restoration is coming. Now I can sleep. Not because everything's all better, but it will be. Hope is not a wish. Hope is not, I hope it happens. That's earthly hope. It's a wish for an uncertainty that you hope will come about, but you're not sure it will. Biblical hope is not a wish. Biblical hope is, I know what's going to happen. Not right this minute, but I know how the story ends. We'll be okay. And that's how you get people like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who are staring at a fiery furnace going, we don't know what happens today, but we know how our story ends. And king, either way, God's got us. We may die today, king. We don't know. But here's what we do know, king. We're not in your hands. We're in his. That's how we get there. They were in perfect peace. They didn't know whether they were going to die a minute, a minute later in that furnace. Be burned horribly. But they said, but we know how our story ends. And King, you can't change it. And in this day and age, we have a lot of voices telling us how scared we need to be. Peace, peace. We know how the story ends. And then we are surrounded by people who we can say, hey, I know you're looking stressed out. Here's how I deal with the big scary thing. Peace. Let's pray. Father, I just thank you. Your people were struggling because they had sinned, they had abandoned you, and big scary things were coming their way. And you were letting it come. Because humans don't listen to you when you only give us good things. You want to give us good things, but we don't listen. We do not learn righteousness when we're only given good things. We only learn righteousness when you bring judgment. And so you have to bring the big scary things so that we can learn how good you are. And so, Lord, if we already know you, we can rest in you knowing that your desire is to save and that you will. And that if we put our trust in you, we are already saved. That if we put our faith in you for your work, that you shed, in, shed your blood and died on the cross for our sins and rose again, defeating death, the enemy we fear most. That you have defeated death and that we need not fear death. We will face it, but it's not the end of our story anymore. And even as we have loved ones who have put their trust in you, we will mourn them, but not like those who don't have any future, no hope, because we know it's not the end of the story. And so our minds will be fixed on you and your work, not on our efforts that don't save anything. Lord, may we discipline our minds to focus on you more than our big scary things. And so we will not be like the drowning victims of this world that are lashing out at each other, fighting each other, tearing each other apart, the very definition of no peace. Because we do not have to fight because we are no longer drowning. Because we are saved.
And may we offer them that. And as lights and salt in this world, may they see in us something entirely different than the battles and the anger and the tearing apart of this world. And may they come to know you. Lord, there are days we want you to come back tomorrow or today. This afternoon would be great, Lord, because we're tired of it. We're tired of the evil in this world. We're tired of the people that are tearing apart. We're tired of seeing the world this way. We're tired of seeing illness and death and, and anger and hatred. And we want it over and we want you just to come back. And Lord, that's a great thing we desire. But Lord, you have told us, you told us the reason you're not back yet is because you're patient because you want to rescue more. That you're not being slow, you're being patient. And so may we, as your people, be committed to your desire to save more by proclaiming peace, good news of your salvation. And may that be our focus each day rather than the big scary things that we all are facing. Thank you, Father, for this word that you've given us that points us back to you. Thank you that although we are sinners and we do not deserve it, that you've poured out all this on us because you care. You love us. And you died on the cross for our sins. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to close with, I wanted to end with this song, so please stand. So what are we afraid of? We know the Lord.